Please be seated. Good evening to you, whether you're at home or whether you're out uh, in the courtyard this evening. And so we are so glad to get together. A little warmer this evening, so warmer out in the courtyard. Reminds me a little bit of uh, 10th and F in the early days downtown. And uh, that western sun would just beat on those windows on the, uh, the, at the sunset on the west side of the building. And we just got cooked until finally we got a a swamp cooler that brought some relief and then uh, ultimately one day uh, air conditioning. But it's among some of the most favorite memories of of all in the history of the church. God is at work in everything and he really uh, makes everything special. We pick things up tonight in our survey of the Bible in uh, Luke's Gospel uh, chapter 4 and we'll pick things up in verse 14. You might remember that last time we uh, took a look at the two kind of great events that uh, occurred in Jesus' life immediately before the beginning of his uh, public ministry, and that was his water baptism, and also his temptation out in the wilderness by the devil. In verse 14 of chapter 4, Luke begins his uh, account of Jesus' public ministry. But it is important to realize that there is about a one-year gap between verses 13 and 14 in Luke's account. And, uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, so when we begin here in verse 14, we're actually beginning a record of Jesus' second year of his public ministry, uh, the second of three years. Uh, the first year of his ministry, there's really not much of a record of it uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but uh, the first year is uh, recorded. What we know about him in that, that first year of obscurity is found in John's Gospel, chapters 2 through 5. And uh, though it was known as the year of obscurity for him because he was going to become more well-known, uh, now as we head into the passage where we are, uh, it was uh, in that year some of the most amazing things that Jesus did and taught uh, recorded there. In verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And so Jesus returns from uh, his water baptism with John the baptizer, uh, the Judean wilderness down the area of Jerusalem. Now he heads up into the region of Galilee where Nazareth is located and uh, the Sea of Galilee is, is located and uh, heads up into uh, that region. He does so in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see this power of the Holy Spirit related to uh, his, his public ministry. And news of him went uh, out through all of the surrounding regions. So even at this point, wherever Jesus would go, uh, the word would get out. There was no internet, there was no Instagram, no Facebook, no any instant anything. And yet um, he was the talk of the nation and uh, he couldn't go anywhere without uh, being noticed. And uh, we're told that as he went into the region of the Galilee, that he taught in their synagogues being glorified uh, by all. And so his ministry up in the northern uh, region of Israel, uh, uh, the Galilee, all of it prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah chapter 9 uh, verse 1, and uh, nevertheless the gloom shall not be upon her who is distressed as when uh, at first he, uh, that is God, lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward made uh, more heavily uh, oppressed her by uh, way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. And then speaking of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And so the Galilee region was much more heavily occupied at that time by Gentiles, by non-Jews, and uh, God had prophesied that in the ministry of the coming Messiah that uh, there would be his ministry would impact the, the uh, Gentiles as well uh, as the Jews. And the Gentiles, of course, in terms of Judaism and a Messiah and a Savior, I mean, they were almost completely ignorant uh, related to those things, very, very superstitious religiously. 
and yet uh, here we see the fulfillment of the prophecy in Galilee. They saw a great light, and that great light was none other than uh, Jesus himself, the light uh, of the world. And then uh, Jesus in verse 16, we have recorded for us his return at this point uh, to his hometown of Nazareth. And so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And that phrase, where he had been brought up, is very important to notice because it really gives us the key to understanding uh, what happens now uh, in the city of Nazareth and specifically in uh, the synagogue there. So he had been brought up there and the people, as a result of that, they possessed some kind of a uh, semblance of familiarity uh, related to him and uh, they were known to him and on a physical level uh, he, was, he was known to them uh, as well. And so here uh, we are, we're told that, uh, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus uh, goes into a synagogue there. He goes into the synagogue, not during uh, the week necessarily, but we're told specifically on the Sabbath day, the Jewish Sabbath of uh, of Saturday. And so uh, we're told further that it was his custom to do that, to attend the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This was an established part uh, of his life. It certainly speaks to his godly heritage and it speaks to the commitment of uh, his mother Mary, also uh, Joseph, in uh, raising him up in the things of the Lord. It was a uh, customary in his childhood and in his youth to attend the synagogue on, uh, on, uh, on the, the Saturdays. In other words, Jesus, all through his childhood, all through his youth, uh, and into his young adult years, uh, he went to church. And when uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews commands us uh, not to forsake the assembling together of saints as Christians, all he's merely calling upon us to do is uh, just one more area of our lives in which to uh, be like Jesus himself. Sometimes uh, people uh, cease attending church because uh, a church has problems. All churches have problems, and uh, and uh, or or because the church isn't perfect. And so we just stop and ask ourselves: uh, Do we think that the synagogue that Jesus attended in Nazareth for uh, thirty years that it was without problems? And as we're going to see, there were a lot of problems in that synagogue, and uh, they hadn't uh, committed their worst act yet. They were going to do that toward uh, Jesus here. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I can't really go to church, it's just so full of hypocrites. Well, where else are we going to meet? And, but the, the uh, whole idea here uh, is... Uh, Jesus was walking into an environment in which the, the synagogue in Nazareth was filled with hypocrites. Not everybody, but a lot of people were there, and yet he attended. And certainly Jesus removes from the life of any Christian uh, any and all excuses for failing to uh, attend uh, weekly worship services to worship him and to be the body of Christ. You say, well, of course, you've got to say that as a pastor. You're trying to drum up a crowd and grow the church. But really, uh, I am not. It is impossible for a, uh, a, 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 an isolated Christian is like an oxymoron. It, it just doesn't belong together. It is impossible for us to be a part of the body of Christ and uh, be effective in any way in influencing the body of Christ for good as God desires to do without being in contact with the body of Christ um, in, in, uh, in worship. And so uh, Jesus attended there and uh, a beautiful example uh, for us. And so it blows up every excuse that anyone can come up with for not uh, attending uh, worship services, unless it becomes uh, physically impossible uh, to be able to do so for one uh, reason or another. I do like to say when we get to these, uh, this kind of uh, thing here in, in each of the Gospels, to just encourage uh, those of you who are parents, Christian parents, uh, to never ever leave it to your children. 
uh, to determine whether they will uh, attend church uh, in their childhood and in their youth and growing into adult age as long as they're under your, your roof and to leave that with them. I know in this whole progressive atmosphere of the United States and we're so worried about making a stand on anything and so concerned to be tolerant and we know that uh, youth can reach an age, not all of them, but a lot of them, where just about everything is a fight. And, uh, but if you're, you don't want to lose any kind of a righteousness battle with your children, but uh, the one righteousness battle that you do not want to lose with your children is the requirement uh, to attend church as, uh, as a family and to do that as a family. That is not a decision that is to be left to uh, the children. The Bible says to train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. We're commanded to train up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and that in, in includes a, um, a corporate worship experience, a corporate experience with, uh, with the body of Christ. And that's a responsibility that that we have uh, before the Lord, and uh, even if it doesn't look like anything is getting through to them, I will use uh, my sisters and my brother as an example of this, myself included, uh, growing up as we were taken to church and uh, late junior high and high school, however sporadically, but uh, we got there as much of a rhythm as my mom could, uh, uh, could manage. And it had to look like to everybody in uh, watching us that we were hopeless cases, that absolutely was nothing was getting through to us. And yet each one of us that were raised in that, uh, uh, though we had some rough spots uh, here and there, uh, everyone came to ultimately walk with the Lord in their adult life. It's, God is faithful not to allow his word to return void, and not even in uh, the hearts and the minds of a youth, when sometimes that might be uh, the greatest challenge uh, of all. God has a way of using a Christian heritage that involves church fellowship uh, to uh, draw uh, people back to him later on uh, in life, and we are to give him that to be accomplished in our children's lives, to give him that to use later in life if they move away from uh, attending church or move away uh, from the faith. Uh, we look at a, the culture that we live in and uh, it's a very, very difficult uh, time. It's a difficult time to raise children, but it is also a very difficult time to be a child and to be a youth. I mean, life is so complicated, the temptations are literally on every hand. Uh, everywhere you look, you're being taught to rebel uh, against parents, to rebel against the authority of Scripture, against the commands uh, of Scripture. And uh, so all of this kind of thing is, is, is going on, and, uh, but we can hardly set our children up uh, for failure in a greater way uh, than to allow them to stay home and do other things instead of bringing them to church as a regular discipline in their life. There's nothing better that they can do. Uh, than to come under the word of God, worship the Lord, be in the midst of people who are doing so and worshiping in the Lord in spirit uh, and in, in truth. And so as Christian parents, we give the, we're to give the Lord this very important thing to work with in their children, our children's lives, the discipline of attending church and assembling together with God's people in, in that way. And if Jesus uh, found it necessary to assemble together with God's people, then uh, how much more our youth, how much more our children do? Again, the temptations that they face, the uh, the options that they face, the, uh, the fear that they face related to the world and what's going on, the insecurity of the world uh, that they're being raised up in now, nothing like it in my entire uh, lifetime. And so uh, they need godly instruction. They need hope. They need their heads to be lifted up uh, above the circumstances in life and lifted up to God every bit as much as we do. Uh, as uh, adults and that godly perspective 
that uh, church uh, provides and attending church uh, does. And I would say also uh, to youth, the children are off doing their thing, but I would say to, ch- to children as well, uh, don't hassle your parents in this regard. One of the things that Karen and I would tell our two daughters when they hit uh, that kind of uh, rough spot on things in, in youth and uh, figuring some things out and it seemed like everything was a battle for a while, and uh, including attending church. And, uh, you know, we would just let them know that this is something we're commanded to do by God, that we're going to stand before God one day and give an account for our faithfulness uh, to this, and that one day they would stand before God on, uh, uh, on, and give an account for their faithfulness to what they were called to do in submitting to uh, us as their uh, parents. And so we see this beautiful picture. Here is Jesus going back to synagogue, going back to church. Now, uh, we're told that he's, as he's in the synagogue, and as his custom with, was, he comes on the Sabbath day, and he stood up then to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, we read it as book, but it was really a scroll. They didn't have uh, books in, in those days as we know them. And uh, Jesus has handed the scroll to the prophet Isaiah. And he found, he deliberately found the place where it is written. And he turns to, though there were no markings in uh, the Hebrew scrolls in those days, but he found uh, the place where it was written in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. That's where he goes. Of course, they could have handed him any scroll uh, related to anything from uh, the writings of Moses or from uh, the, the prophets that make, make up the, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and he could have preached himself from that, but he had a specific message to them that he wanted to preach from Isaiah chapter 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. At this point, it is helpful to understand uh, what the structure of a synagogue service was in those days and is even today to understand what's happening in the flow of all of this. If you were to attend a synagogue uh, service today, uh, typically it would begin with a prayer, uh, even as our services do, by asking God uh, to bless the service. And then there would be followed by, uh, it would be followed by a declaration uh, of the traditional Hebrew confession of faith, the Jewish Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and with all of your might. And uh, this is what they would pronounce then at the beginning of the service. And then that would be followed by uh, prayers. And that would then be followed by uh, a scripture reading. First, a passage from the Torah, the Law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then followed by a reading from the Old Testament prophets. And so that section of the worship service has already uh, occurred now, or Jesus is going to do the reading from uh, the prophets here, from the the, the, the uh, uh, scroll of, of Isaiah. Following the scripture reading, there would then be a brief sermon that would be given uh, from the passage that had been read, and then the service would be closed with a benediction, uh, with the rabbi of the synagogue pronouncing God's blessing upon uh, the congregation, commending them to God for the remainder of the day and the remainder of uh, the week. And when it came uh, to that section of the service having to do with the reading from the Old Testament prophets, uh, Jesus now having a reputation as a rabbi, when you would have a special notable rabbi in your uh, synagogue, very common to have him read a passage from scripture and deliver the homily or deliver the, the sermon for that day, especially when you have a hometown boy who has obviously made uh, very, very good, become famous in his first year of ministry. He comes back home to Nazareth and he is allowed to read the scriptures and then also uh, to teach from them on that Saturday morning. Handed the scroll there, he opens it up and he finds the place. Now, he purposely found that place 
because Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 are so messianic. I mean, they have to do with the coming of the Messiah. And so understand that when he reads uh, this passage here uh, that we're going to read here in a moment, he, he is reading it to the congregation and every single one in that room knows it has to do with the Messiah. And so uh, he read uh, that the Spirit of the Lord, he finds it there, uh, the, the, the place in Isaiah, and he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable uh, year of the Lord. And then having uh, read that particular passage, he then closed the book or he handed the scroll back to the attendant in the synagogue and, uh, and then he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now when we uh, read this and we read the fact that he read the scripture and he sat down, uh, we have a tendency in our Western culture to think, well, he was done. Uh, but that's not how it worked, uh, works in a synagogue, and, it, and it's not how the, the word was taught uh, by the Jews in the, in the ancient world. And so he sat down, and uh, we think he's finished now, but they all know he is just beginning, because in those days, the teacher would sit and the listeners would stand. So when he sits down after the reading, it's a signal to them that he's about to give them a teaching on the passage that he had just read to them. And that's why we read that every eye is fixed on him. They are transfixed upon him and uh, tremendous anticipation in the room over what is he going to say about this passage. And his teaching, as we see uh, there in verse 23, he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he might have said more to them than just this sentence, but this is all that we have recorded for us. If uh, this is, uh, th there would be nothing wrong at all and, and may be, very well be the case that he, he then sits down and his sermon is a single sentence. And one thing about a single sentence sermon is that nobody can leave wondering what in the world was he talking about. I mean, it is a tool for clarity. And, and so he delivers this, uh, the, the gist of what he wanted to communicate to them. He said to them, today, uh, this scripture, this messianic scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It is fulfilled right here uh, in this uh, uh, synagogue. One of the interesting things about this quotation from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 is that Jesus, as he quotes it here, he doesn't quote it in its entirety. He does not quote the last portion of the sentence in verse 2. He stops abruptly at that point and it literally mid-verse and, and stops his quotation from the passage. It wasn't like he forgot what the passage was or what's the, what's the rest of that passage? Uh, that wouldn't happen to him, period. But he had the scroll right in his hands. All of this is very, very uh, uh, deliberate. That passage, that uh, verse goes on to say, uh, and the day of vengeance of our God and uh, to comfort all who uh, mourn. And later Jesus is going to make this very, very clear in the course of his ministry, but what he was already giving a hint at here and where he stopped in the passage was the idea that he, uh, of his two comings, that he would fulfill this section of the messianic passage in his first coming and that he will fulfill that final portion of verse two at his second coming. And he is declaring uh, the fact or setting the stage for the fact that he would, uh, this uh, fulfillment would be prophesied, uh, this prophecy would be fulfilled in the course of, of two 
uh, comings. Well, Jesus didn't have to wait any length of time to discover uh, what their reaction is <laughs> to what, uh, what it is that he said. And uh, the reaction was twofold, verse 22. So all bore witness to him, and they marveled at the gracious words that pro- uh, proceeded out of his mouth. And so this gives the idea that he may have given an elaboration related to the sentence, we do, the single sentence, uh, but we don't know. But they marveled uh, at what it is that they're hearing from Uh, heard from his lips. That was one of the reactions. And then another reaction was, uh, and they said, is this not uh, Joseph's uh, son? And so you have this combination uh, reaction of marveling uh, related to him and and then also uh, doubt related to him. And they marveled at at uh, the uh, the wonderful things that that he had said, maybe marveling at the uh, beautiful reminder from Isaiah of what the Messiah would be when he uh, uh, would come. They were looking to the Messiah to come into the world to throw off the Roman yoke at that time and make the nation of Israel uh, the uh, preeminent among all of the nations of the world. That was their expectation. But uh, Jesus reminds them that there is uh, of another aspect of the Messiah that they tended to overlook and even ignore. And, uh, and with this description of Messiah, the description uh, here is it's given to us in 18 and 19. I think you have one of the most beautiful descriptions uh, of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life that we have in all of the Gospels. And with it, I think, an invaluable description of what the anointing of the Holy Spirit will look like uh, in our lives uh, as well as uh, Christians. Um, I love the whole body of Christ. I love uh, dispensationalists who don't believe in baptism of the Holy Spirit or all of the gifts for today. I love Pentecostals. I love Charismatics. But there can be a tendency for some, not all, but some Pentecostals and Charismatics to believe that they're kind of the expert on things concerning uh, the Holy Spirit. And uh, there are things that are taught even in their midst that aren't always uh, entirely accurate related to the Scriptures, but have fun convincing them of that because they've been told that they're the experts on this particular dynamic related to uh, the, the Holy Spirit. Again, not all of them, but, but some of them, and I've run into them uh, through the years. And, uh, and so often, there's the tendency to look at the anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, upon our lives in kind of one-dimensional way, uh, to view it as something that is uh, mainly in force in a church service, maybe doing a Jericho march or gifts of the Holy Spirit operating uh, in, uh, in the room and, and boldness in preaching and, and all of, of, of these kind of, of things. And, and the idea of what the anointing of the Holy Spirit will look like becomes very, very narrow and uh, uh, one or two uh, uh, dimensional. And one of the things I like about this passage is it really broadens it out a lot and it shows us that the anointing of the Holy Spirit within our lives has very much a nitty-gritty of life element uh, to it. It's, it is very, very non-showy and uh, it is the empowerment to do stuff that no one would do for any length of time uh, apart from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this prophecy that when the Messiah came, he would, verse 18, preach the gospel to the poor, the physically poor, the overlooked within uh, the world, but also the spiritually poor. Verse 18, he would heal the brokenhearted. And this is a world, one of the great things about becoming older as a Christian, and certainly in, in serving the Lord, is you realize 
that this Bible and what the Bible teaches, everybody needs. This world is, except for a very small sliver of people, a very hard place for people. It's a very broken place, a very uh, fallen place, and it is a place filled with heartbreak. And they're always going to be the heartbroken that need uh, healing, and uh, healing that only God can bring into a person's life. To proclaim liberty to the captives, verse 18, those that have become enslaved to self, enslaved to sin, enslaved to darkness, and you cannot open up the door like we've done as a culture to allow people to just simply uh, access any kind of uh, degrading, dark, demonic thing without coming to uh, pay a price for that as a culture. You reap what you uh, sow. But thankfully, there are people in the midst of all of that who become captives, realize they are, now want out, and they're waiting to hear about the Messiah who will bring them out. And then to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, speaking specifically of uh, spiritual uh, blindness. To be spiritually blind is to be unable to see the spiritual reality that goes on all around us in life uh, every day uh, and something that we're able to now see uh, by virtue of a spiritual birth and uh, that Jesus allows us to see. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, King James, old King James puts it, those who are bruised. Again, this is a world that beats people up. It hammers people. Again, it's a hard place. And you know, and I know, here we are as Americans, we know that it beats us up, and we're in one of the most comfortable environments in the entire world, materially uh, speaking, and yet nobody escapes this. This is a world that oppresses. This is a world uh, that beats us up. And the idea that we then take a message to the world that Jesus will free us from uh, that uh, oppression and he'll give us uh, the powers and weapons with which we can really uh, be more than a conqueror in our dealing with uh, the demonic realm and the, the oppression of the world. To proclaim, verse 19, the acceptable year of the Lord. This referred to, refers to the Jewish uh, the year of Jubilee from Leviticus chapter 25. You may or may not be aware, but every 50th year in the Jewish religious calendar, it was the year of Jubilee. And on that year, everyone was freed from their slavery. Everyone was freed of every single debt. If you were on week two, of uh, buying your house on a 40-year mortgage. <laughs> All that debt was released from you. And, and so you can imagine the, celeb- uh, the celebration that the year of Jubilee was among uh, the Jewish people. And all of it was uh, just a, a foreshadowing of Jesus, how he would come into the world and make every day uh, a day of Jubilee in him and setting us free from uh, every bondage that can possibly take us into bondage. And here we have this beautiful, again, description of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I just want it to be in the mix in your heart and in my heart as well. Again, we just sometimes we just think Holy Spirit, we think gifts of the Holy Spirit, anointing, and our mind just goes off to some otherworldly kind of thing. And it is otherworldly in its, in its origin, but it, it is meant to work through our individual lives in, in the nitty-gritty of life. And I, I was talking with a, a brother in the Fellowship Hub Moller this morning, and we were just talking just a little bit about the fact that how we're all called to do the same thing, but we have different callings. And so uh, my, my calling is a little bit different than, than most people. But I'll tell you something, and I, and I said it to Hub, I said, but yeah, but if somebody needs somebody to run a D8, they don't want me running a D8, they want you running a D8. 
And that's just how it works. Uh, all of us necessary, all of us needing this kind of an anointing in the nitty-gritty of life, and it really, really uh, makes a difference. In verse 22, we see that there was also this element of doubt uh, concerning Jesus, and they, and they expressed their doubt in, uh, with the sentence, is this not Joseph's son? Uh, and, uh, and the idea is, how can a boy, uh, a, a young man, who grew up in this city, in can anything good come out of Nazareth? How can a, a young man grow up in this city and be raised in our synagogue and be the Messiah? It was jaw-dropping uh, uh, to them, and, uh, and on the basis of this, they uh, rejected his uh, claim, and they rejected it on the basis of a supposed familiarity uh, with him, thinking they knew a lot more about him than they, they actually did. Jesus' response to their rejection is very interesting in verse 23. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal thyself. Whatever you have done in uh, Capernaum, uh, do also in your own country. And so uh, the first thing he does here in responding to them is he tells them what it is they're thinking privately uh, in their own uh, uh, minds. And, and he uh, and anticipated what their counsel would be to him and the request that they uh, would, would make of him and that what they were dying to say to him is physician, uh, heal thyself. And that's what they wanted to say. And, and in that, that physician, heal thyself, is the idea that we don't believe your claim to be the Messiah, and, but there is a cure for our unbelief. If you will just do some of the miracles that we hear that you've been doing in Capernaum, and you do them here in the synagogue or here in Nazareth, uh, then uh, that's how you can heal yourself. Or that's how you can uh, establish your reputation uh, in, in our uh, eyes. And then Jesus said to them further in verse 24, the second thing, verily, verily, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own uh, country. And he reminded them that Israel had a very, very long history of rejecting all of the prophets that God uh, sent to them and, uh, and, uh, that were, and they were simply on this particular Saturday morning uh, continuing that, that history. It is interesting in terms of a prophet is not without honor and except in his own household. I don't know why God moved me from Napa to the Modesto in order to be a pastor. All I know is I pinch myself that he did and I'm so thankful that he did. But I don't doubt that uh, for a lot of us, and, and certainly for me, he had to get me out of my hometown. I mean, uh, pe you, 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 people know too much about us. They know what we were like as a child. They know what we were like in our youth. They know all of these uh, uh, kind of things. And when they've kind of watched us grow up, it's hard for them to take us seriously in what we're saying because they haven't been born again yet and recognize the, uh, the quality and the depth of the mi miracle that occurs in being born again, that you really do become uh, a, new, uh, a new creation. And uh, so uh, God made sure, and here is Jesus is saying, uh, a prophet, uh, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He's letting them, them know here that they're rejecting him uh, uh, based on some, not on, based on some supposed flaw that they see in him, but they were rejecting him uh, 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 on the basis of a supposed familiarity uh, 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 with him. And I think about how many people today reject Jesus Christ because they've heard one or two or three things, uh, secondhand, thirdhand, I'm talking about our country, uh, third hand about him. Some uh, university professor said something or uh, in a conversation growing up in school or whatever, and they allowed two or three even inaccurate snippets about Jesus to then 
constitute the foundation for their rejection of him for the rest of their lives. I mean, it's the most illogical thing that a person could do uh, to think that I am familiar with him on the basis of hearing a handful of things, second and third hand, rather than discovering what he's really like as he's uh, described and written about uh, in the Bible. And I I marvel, I I suppose that you do as well, but I marvel in in the uh, the United States what has happened so quickly within, uh, within our country and how many people in just a generation live all day, every day, is as if the Bible did not exist in uh, human history. They will live their entire life and never crack the book once, never read a single uh, page from it, and, uh, and make the slightest effort to investigate him on their own. And it's just a tragedy, and it's as, as old as uh, Jesus' uh, ministry. We'll see in a moment that uh, what characterized this synagogue is the same thing that characterizes so many people today. They don't want to investigate because they don't want to know. They don't want to be moved in any way from engaging in the sin that they're practicing, engaging in a self-willed life, that their life should be under the submission of God, and so they stay away from it and are very effective at silencing uh, people. And it's one of the hard things about being a Christian is that uh, the hardest rejection that we face is on the, uh, the basis of relationships that we care the most about in life, which is uh, in our own country or in our own family. And so often we can think, oh, if I had just said that better. And sure, we could probably all say everything a little bit better than we do, but we begin to, if I could just get the, and I could just, and then, uh, but now they don't want to listen to us, and we think that it's all because of some failure on our part, when very often it is they're very well aware of what it is that you're saying. They understand completely what you're sharing with them, uh, and they don't want to know anymore because they don't want the change uh, that God would bring uh, in their life. And so uh, Jesus, his third response to them in verse 25 is he gave them a history lesson. He said, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all of the land. And to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a Gentile uh, area, to a woman who was a widow. And then he goes on to speak of Elisha, and many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman uh, the Syrian. And so here he reminds uh, them of the, God's use of the two greatest uh, uh, prophets in Jewish history, uh, second only to John the Baptist, and that is Elijah and Elisha. And uh, both of these prophets uh, uh, spoke for God to the Jewish people during a period in their history in which they were very apostate uh, from uh, God, their lowest point in terms of obeying God or being faithful to God. And they were uh, just in, in wholesale rejection against God, His truth, and, and His revelation. And uh, since they had rejected God, in a sense, God rejected them for a period and, uh, and brought judgment upon them. But in the midst of that judgment, he chose to express mercy to the Gentiles. And at that point in time in their history, with both uh, Elisha and Elijah, Gentiles were more open to the prophets that God, Jewish prophets that God had spent to speak to the Jewish people than the Jewish people were uh, themselves. Elijah going in in the midst of a great famine and miraculously feeding that widow in Zarephath. It's recorded in in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 during the the ministry of Elisha. 
God cleansed that, that great uh, general, the Gentile leper, by the name of, of Naaman of his leprosy. And here Jesus told them that their rejection of him as the Messiah uh, does not change the fact that he is the Messiah. And the only result that uh, it'll have is that God will leave them in their state of unbelief and then go on and reach those who will be willing to listen to him, even if it is the Gentile world that will be willing to listen to him more than the Jews. Well, their reaction to all of this, uh, it wasn't uh, a popular uh, second sermon in the synagogue that day. So uh, verse 28, they Uh, All those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. I mean, they were enraged at what he uh, had just said uh, to them. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and uh, the city proper. And then they led him to the brow of the hill, which is uh, on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And if you make your way to the city of Nazareth today, you can see there's this, uh, whether this is the exact same place, I don't know, but this very, very steep place. And and in fact, uh, the government of Israel has set up as a teaching site for teaching this very passage there. Uh, And to be thrown off of that ledge is quite a fall down from there and would surely end up in in death. And so perhaps that was the the exact place that that, uh, uh, is spoken of here. And then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So they are uh, uh, infuriated with Jesus here. And it's because he has spoken favorably of the three groups of people that the Jews looked down on the most in terms of religiously and also in terms of a national pride and identity. And that was uh, women and uh, the Gentiles, uh, non-Jews, and uh, lepers. So this really smote their pride, this really smote their nationalism, and uh, these people, uh, that these people could be spoken of as being more eager to hear God than they were or to receive God's touch than, than they were. Uh, it, it was an affront to them, and, uh, and yet it remains true to this day. As it has been for 2,000 years, uh, Gentiles who have rushed to Jesus as Messiah and as Savior, Savior, comparatively speaking, as opposed uh, to the Jews. And yet, uh, it was so true of them that, uh, uh, that they were about to reject and attempt to kill here as they did uh, their Messiah. And they looked at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and they didn't see themselves as in need of any of this from uh, the Messiah did not, not view them as a need at all. They viewed themselves as already being saved on their way to heaven. And who was Jesus to intimate uh, that, that they, uh, that they uh, weren't? And, uh, and their wrath being so great that they resorted, as we read here, to physical violence, even attempted murder in, in desiring uh, to silence his voice. And that's the length that not just uh, the Gentile, non-religious, secular world will go to to silence the voice of Christ and God through His Son, but also the religious world as well. If you don't think that Jesus would end up, I'm just speaking hypothetically, that Jesus would end up crucified in, uh, in Israel in less than three and a half years today, then you're kidding yourself in terms of, of, of the zeal of, of the rejection uh, by him on the part of many. Many Jews, are beca- uh, more than ever in history, are being saved in this hour in human history, and, and we rejoice in that. But their solution to it was to kill the messenger in order to kill the message. And that's what they 
that's what they wanted to do, and that's what our culture does. I mean, they want to, uh, they, uh, the, the, the uh, encroaching upon us, there's that sense that without a revival, that this is only going to get worse, uh, this movement against us as Christians, and uh, you have to understand that uh, there's certainly a, a, a demonic element behind it, but it isn't that they don't understand what we're saying, once again. They understand fully what it is that what we're, what we're saying and what God is saying through us to the world. It is that they do not want to hear it and they will go to the point of uh, killing a person in order to silence that voice. And that is what is behind the persecution and martyrdom of Christians all through the ages. It is when a person has, uh, the the culture or individuals or tribe have decided we don't want anything to do with this, but the the only way to stop this person's voice is then to uh, put them to flames or whatever the methodology might be. They were unsuccessful in stopping Jesus. Uh, You might uh, realize that in terms of the Old Testament prophecies, there were no prophecies that Messiah would come into the world, return to the city of Nazareth, and die by being thrown off of a cliff. Now the prophecies all indicated that he would come into the world and he would die by means of crucifixion for the sins of the world. And so uh, this attempt was completely unsuccessful. Jesus continued with his plan and he left. It is fascinating uh, to realize that when he leaves Nazareth at this point, there is no indication in the rest of the, the gospel records that he ever returned there. And it is so incredibly heavy. God is such a gentleman. He will uh, seek us. He will plead with us. He will leave the 99 to go to the, to, to the one Uh, but he will not force us. And the person can slam that door, shut that door on the Lord and their desires to have nothing to do with him and he will honor that decision that a a person uh, uh, makes. And so this day that was, should have been one of the most joyous events in Jesus' life, he comes home to Nazareth He goes into the synagogue he was raised in and he's going to preach a sermon to all of these people he was raised uh, around. And if they had simply believed in him for who he was, it would have gone down as one of the great events in the gospel and instead it is one of the most heartbreaking events found in, in all of the gospels as he is rejected in his hometown Uh, simply because they thought they knew something about him when they really didn't know uh, anything about him at all. And then uh, he uh, made his way uh, then to the city of Capernaum, verse 31, a city of Galilee, having left Nazareth, been rejected there. He goes to the city of Capernaum. That will now become the center of his entire ministry, this city Uh, that sat on the Sea of Galilee up in the northern part of Israel, Galilee of uh, the Gentiles. And in Capernaum, he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So imagine, he's teaching multiple times in that synagogue on the Sabbaths, and if you ever get a a CD uh, or a a cassette tape of that, I'd be interested in it. I I would outbid uh, Tom Hinman uh, for it. Uh, if you if you do uh, get it, so he's teaching. The reaction there uh, is given to us. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. So uh, he he taught them, and uh, we're not told what passage this time that he taught from on this particular Sabbath day. Uh, in, in Capernaum because that's not the focus of, the, uh, of the, uh, the, the record of the Holy Spirit here. 
The Holy Spirit's focus here is in the way that he taught and the effect that the way that he taught had uh, uh, upon uh, the listeners. And so they were astonished at his teaching and the idea is they were dumbstruck. I mean, they just, they were so deeply impacted by what it is that they heard him say as he would uh, teach the passages of Scripture uh, uh, to them. And the reason that they were, were told, is that he, he taught as one having authority. So he simply read the Scripture, he explained the Scripture, and then he applied it to uh, their uh, lives. What was happening in those days was the, the, the teaching that was going on in the synagogue also at the temple uh, was... Uh, dominated very much by the scribes. The scribes were, uh, they were scribes. They were religious scribes. And so they were the copyists of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, when everything was done by hand. So they, they, become, they became experts in uh, the law and the prophets. And so they would then go to these synagogues and, the, and they would uh, teach the word uh, of God there. And, uh, but because their setting was very, very academic, uh, their teaching was very, very academic uh, as well. And um, increasingly the Bible became, under the uh, teaching of the scribes, it became very academic book. The Bible was just kind of supremely a book that was uh, filled with all kinds of deep subjects to uh, to debate and uh, to talk about and, and and all, rather than declaring a message with authority. Now, I I love to listen to Bible teaching because. I just need to be fed the Word of God all of the time. And I've always got Bible teaching going on in my life. And I'm very thankful for the internet because you can access uh, uh, so, so much. But finding Bible teaching that actually where somebody uh, believes the Bible and then actually breaks down the passage to where you can understand it and speaks it with authority. There's plenty of people out there, but they're not as common as you, you might think. And so when, when you get them, it's always wonderful. So I listen to a lot of teachers that are alive today. I enjoy them very, very much. I listen to a lot of preaching from decades and decades ago in the United States of America. And there's a very big difference between the, the teaching and preaching that went on in the United States uh, 40, 50 years ago than how the Bible is taught today. The Bible is taught as it's taught generally today is um, very much like a rap section, uh, session. It is very conversational. And there's a lot of, uh, 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 there's a lot of strengths to that model in terms of the person just uh, talking to you, you understand it, it's conversational, it's easy to receive, all of that is, uh, is wonderful uh, and, and it's, it's great. But uh, it is important and one of the things that I like about listening to older preaching too is that that preaching in those days, uh, by and large, the Word of God was ministered with a greater authority. Uh, you have the sense that the minister uh, went up behind the sacred desk, as they uh, might call it, and that that man had a message from God to deliver to the congregation that day. It wasn't merely to inform, but it was uh, to produce a response in them. It was, uh, it was intended to reason with them and bring them to a proper conclusion about some issue in life uh, related to the Bible. And that kind of preaching is disappearing today. And all I want to say is all of it's great uh, in terms of Bible teaching. We need to be the people that we are. But I would say certainly and want to say to those of you uh, younger men and women who have a desire to teach the Word of God uh, and to minister the Word of God to God's people, the conversational method and model is a wonderful, wonderful model but never, never present it as something that's just fodder for a discussion. Uh, you're there to speak for God, 
And uh, I love where Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, he would get into the pulpit in that passage from Corinthians, what I have received from the Lord, I deliver unto you now. He knew what he wanted to say. He knew he had received that from God. And when you, when you know that, you deliver the word of God with a different kind of authority. So I'm not telling you to be a certain way, but be authoritative. And what the scribes did uh, was in handling the word of God in this kind of a way is just like the Bible is fodder for discussion items, is it gave people the idea that you can obey this or not obey this. Uh, It modeled for them, you could believe what you wanted and you could disregard what you wanted uh, uh, from uh, from, uh, the Bible. And uh, so they would get up and and begin to teach in the synagogue and uh, they would never say anything authoritatively uh, from God on their own. So they would quote Rabbi Hillel, they would quote Rabbi Shimei, and uh, Rabbi Cohen, and never ever say, this is what the passage says, and this is what we need to do. And uh, the idea was, well, you can pick whatever interpretation you want. There's all these broad views from the different uh, uh, rabbis. And finally, when Jesus takes the scriptures, I mean, put yourself in, in the shoes when you've been under this kind of, of, of wishy-washiness related to the word of God. And he teaches with love, but he teaches with a clarity. He actually says something from the Bible with authority, and they marveled uh, uh, related uh, uh, to it, and it, uh, it deeply, deeply uh, impacted them. And uh, as he's teaching one day in the synagogue there in verse uh, uh, 33, uh, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And uh, so apparently all of this other teaching that had been going on, uh, the, as long as the word of God is being presented as something that's optional, uh, that is something that is really there for us to kind of form our own opinions about. It never disturbs the devil. So you have a demon-possessed man in this environment, and, uh, and the demon is not troubled at all until Jesus comes now and speaks with uh, authority here. And the demon cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And uh, demons know more truth about uh, who Jesus is uh, than the average American. And here he declares that you are Jesus of Nazareth. He confesses Jesus' humanity. He declares him to be the Holy One of God. And he is saying two things at once. You are the Messiah and you are the Son of God. That is, you are uh, divine. And, uh, and, And he makes this confession concerning him. But notice what he says to him in verse 34. He says, let us alone. Uh, it, it is interesting uh, today, I think, of, in, in this uh, uh, realm, uh, certainly the homosexual movement uh, began it, uh, and so successful in Sweden, then moving through Europe, ultimately into Canada, where there are all these uh, censorship laws that somebody, a, a pastor, can't even preach in a, a, a negative way or an exhortive way or say that homosexuality is even wrong and, uh, and how influential they, they have been uh, against having that be taught uh, as a sin even within uh, a church. And of course, there's a great push for this kind of thing uh, in, in this country. And it's important to realize there's a very, very real uh, demonic spirit behind leave us alone no matter what the sin is. And again, we feel it. I'm aware of the time. I'm just about done. But we feel it um, in the culture. We feel the culture, not just with homosexuality, but sexual immorality in general, or whatever it might be, and the culture is given full license to sin, 
And then here we are as Christians living something different, believing something different, saying something different, and uh, the persecution that comes against us, the endeavor to silence us, is the same uh, cry of the devil 2,000 years ago, uh, leave us alone. And the degree to which a culture says to the Christian church, leave us alone in terms of what it is that you're teaching with authority is the degree to which that culture is uh, demonized and is under the influence of the demonic uh, realm. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet, come out of him. Jesus didn't need the demonic realm uh, doing the advertising for him and who he was. And when the demon had thrown him uh, in their midst, it came out of the man and it did not hurt him. And they were all amazed among themselves saying, what a word is this for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And so we will stop there uh, tonight and uh, we can stand as we get ready to close in prayer. I always love these uh, uh, passages that speak to Jesus' power to deliver people from uh, the demonic uh, realm. How, where would we go for this in the entire world if this wasn't something that Jesus provided? And again, as the world becomes more demonic, more demonically influenced, more uh, demonized, and uh, people going to the place of becoming demon-possessed, uh, it, it will create uh, a desire on the part of some to be delivered of this. And so it's important for us to understand he has the power and the authority that nobody else possesses to deliver a person from even the extremity of that condition. If you stand out in the courtyard right now or wherever you might be, and uh, you are not yet a Christian. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front by the screen, and uh, they would love to pray with you to become a Christian to this evening. What a wonderful, oh, every day is a wonderful day to become a Christian and begin this great journey and, and the life that is found there, to be forgiven of your sins and to know you're going to go to heaven instead of hell at the end uh, of this, uh, this life. If you need prayer for anything, uh, they'd love to pray for any of you this evening as well. Let's pray now. Father,